Well, if you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to uh, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, same verses that uh, Sam has just read for us. And during this season, uh, when we're not doing Sunday school and things aren't quite as uh, we would prefer them to be, we've, we've wondered how better uh, to uh, engage our children and what we do get to do here uh, at um, uh, when we gather for worship. And, and so we've, I've asked Sam to begin to, to try to take some of the, the ideas and the concepts of the sermon and, and to present them to our, our children in a way that is um, very accessible uh, to them. And, and we want to really pick up on the same themes, because uh, the word is not different for them than it is for us. And so I'm not going to make you say woohoo or anything like that, um, but uh, we do want to look at what Jesus has to teach us about the kingdom of God uh, and what he has to teach us about uh, the role that the Holy Spirit plays in making that good news known. And so last Sunday, we positioned ourselves to, to see the book of Acts as the continuing story of, of all that Jesus did and taught after his ascension. But as we see in these opening verses, we, we first need to see what Jesus did between his resurrection and his ascension, what he did after he rose again, but before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we need to see what he did in those, those 40 days, because it was in those 40 days that he laid the foundation for the work that he was going to do after his ascension. And what we see in this text is that, is that Luke really describes for us four things that Jesus did in those 40 days. First, he presented himself alive to his apostles. He showed that he was indeed risen. Second, he taught them about the kingdom of God. He explained to his disciples what it means for the king to be risen and the implications that has for the coming kingdom of God. And then we're told that he gave them commands, a command we will see to be his witnesses, not just there in Jerusalem, but even to the end of the earth. But then finally... He told them to wait, not to, to launch out immediately with this good news, but to wait, to wait for the promise of the Father, to, to wait for the baptism of the Spirit, because it was only in the power of the Spirit that they would be able to do what they had been called to do. And so I want us to look briefly at each of these four events in Jesus' life, in those 40 days between his resurrection and his Ascension. I know Sam has already prayed for us, but let me uh, pray uh, as we begin to dive into this text. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace, and we pray that you would be with us as we uh, set our minds and our hearts upon these verses, Father. Open our eyes to the truth, that we might receive it, that we might love it, uh, and that we might be shaped by it to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want us to see these four things that Jesus did between his resurrection and his ascension. And the first is that he presented himself alive. You see it there in verse 3. Luke just says it. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering or after his passion. And, and notice what he says. He did this by many proofs. 
Right? He, he didn't just show up once in the blink of an eye so that, so that people were wondering kind of what happened. Was, did I really see him? Did I not? Uh, but rather, he presented himself alive by many proofs. He, he gave them irrefutable evidence of his bodily resurrection. He, he showed up again and again and again. We, we read one of the first accounts in, in Luke chapter 24. Turn there with me if, if you have your Bibles with you. Turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 36. Because here we begin, we see the disciples gathered after Jesus' crucifixion, and, and we're told that as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself, who had been crucified, who had been buried, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. And as you would expect, if, if someone who you had seen crucified, if someone who you had seen buried showed up in your midst, the disciples were startled and they were frightened. And what did they think? They thought they saw a spirit. It was not their immediate thought that here is Jesus bodily risen from the dead because they knew, just like people today know, people don't rise bodily from the dead. When you have been dead and when you have, are buried, you, you don't come and, and meet your disciples in the upper room. The, the, the people of the first century were not more in doubt about death than we are today. If anything, they, they knew it more clearly. They, they didn't have the, the illusion of modern medicine which could dull our senses to the inevitable reality of death. They knew what death was. They knew Jesus had died. And so when he came and he stood among them, they were startled, they were afraid, and they assumed this must be his spirit. But verse 38, Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So Jesus shows up in their midst. He allows them to, to touch his hands and his, his side. He, he eats a meal with them. He, he shows them beyond reasonable doubt that he is indeed bodily risen. And this is a scene that didn't happen just once, but it happened again and again over the course of, of 40 days. We, we know from John's Gospel that the first time Jesus showed up with the disciples, Thomas wasn't there. And, and of course, for all perpetuity, we now refer to him as Doubting Thomas. Of course, all the disciples doubted, even when he was standing there. But nevertheless, Thomas gets the blame. And he is Doubting Thomas. And yet Jesus shows up again to show Thomas his hands and his sides, to let him touch him, to see that he is bodily risen from there, that he is not a spirit, that this is not some vision, that this is, this is not just wish fulfillment. This is Jesus alive from the dead. And of course, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that he appeared over and over again. He, he appeared to, yes, Peter and the twelve, but, but at one point he appeared to 500 at one time. And do you remember what Paul says? He says, most of whom are still alive. Why would he say that? Why would he, why would he point that out? Why would he remind the Corinthians that, that most of those 500 are still alive? The, the clear implication is that you can go talk to them. You can go ask them. Most of them are, are still alive. They can tell you their experience. They can tell you what they 
Saul. Because Jesus showed himself alive by many proofs. Irrefutable evidence beyond reasonable doubt. The resurrection was not a secret private event. It did not happen in a corner. It did not happen in a closet. It was public. It was seen. It was known. And it was undeniable. And as Christians, we need to own the reality of the the public nature of this event. It was not in doubt. The meaning could be debated But that Jesus who was risen was known. It was like that Andrew Peterson song where he says, I've seen too much. I can't doubt it. I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes. These first witnesses, they knew. They knew they weren't following a cleverly devised myth. They they knew that they they were not uh, simply uh, clinging to, to fanciful hopes. They had seen him. They had eaten with him. They had had touched his hands. They had touched his his side. They knew that he was alive. And that matters. It matters because the resurrection is the foundational fact of our faith. It is so foundational that we can say, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is no gospel. It's what Paul himself says. If Jesus did not rise, there is no gospel. If Jesus did not rise, there is no hope of the forgiveness of sins. There is no hope of inheritance in the the coming kingdom. Because if Jesus did not rise, there is no kingdom and there is no forgiveness. When he rose again from the dead, he defeated death. He disarmed the enemies. He established himself as the king who was going to put things right. And not only did he establish the kingdom, but he made a way for us into the kingdom by taking the record of debt which stood against us and nailing it to the cross. And so Jesus makes the kingdom and he makes a way into the kingdom for his people by his resurrection from the dead. And if he did not rise, there is no gospel. But if he did, then this is the only gospel. If he did, this is the gospel of the king who reigns in the kingdom. And you are His subject. You will be held accountable to Him. He is the King to whom you must answer. And so Jesus' resurrection is the foundational fact of our Christian faith. And it is a fact established beyond reasonable doubt. Those first witnesses were with Him for 40 days They saw him again and again. They knew the truth. And not only did they know the truth, not only did they know that he was alive, but they understood the significance of his resurrection. Not in full. We see that a little bit in verse 8. They don't don't quite yet get it fully. But they knew the reality because Jesus himself taught them about the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't just show up and say, hey, I'm alive, figure out what it means. He 
showed himself alive and then taught them about the kingdom of God. Again, we, we see it in verse 3. He, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. We often talk about the gospel today in the, the modern evangelical church without mentioning the kingdom. But that would have been inconceivable to Jesus. The, the kingdom is a thread that runs through his entire public ministry. We, we know at the very beginning of his ministry from, from Mark chapter 1, verse 15, that, that Jesus showed up on the scene proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Mark tells us that he, he came saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's how Jesus began his ministry. He began his ministry by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand because the king has finally come. And of course here he ends his ministry. He spends his last 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. Clearly for Jesus, the kingdom is of central importance to the good news of the gospel. And so we must ask ourselves, what is this kingdom? What is the kingdom that he is talking about? And I think we get a good answer to that question when we, when we remember the words of that prayer that we, we use in our confession of faith, that prayer that we, we say here almost every Sunday, the, the words of what we call the Lord's Prayer. They, they teach us something significant about this kingdom because we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now you know that in Jewish thought, they would often put lines side by side, parallel to one another, to, to, to explore, explain and, and, ex, and expound upon the meaning. And so in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, that second line is not actually there because he's not giving us a Jewish form. He's giving us a more Greek form of the same prayer. But we know from Matthew's Gospel that these lines are actually in parallel with each other. They are, they are expounding upon one idea. And so to pray, thy kingdom come, is to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is where his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that sounds confusing to some of us because we're like, well, isn't God's will always done? Doesn't God work all things according to the counsel of his will? Isn't God perfectly sovereign? And of course, he is. he is. He is perfectly sovereign over all of creation. And in a mysterious sense, all things happen according to his will. But there is another sense in which, of course, God's will is thwarted all the time. When the nations of this earth shake their fist in God's face and say, we will not do what you say. Yes, they do not ultimately threaten God's sovereignty, but they vandalize His kingdom. They break His peace. They, they bring uh, perversion and, and death and, and, and shame and guilt into His kingdom because they refuse to do His will. But there is coming a time when God will establish His kingdom on earth and not just in one locale, but across the entire globe. This is the kingdom of God. There's coming a day when God's will will again be done on earth as it is in heaven. When every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. When every person will, will joyfully submit to His reign, acknowledging 
that it is better to serve the king than to be a prince in your own pathetic little kingdom. This is the wonder of God's kingdom. It is, it is the bringing of God's shalom to earth. It's, it's what God always intended. God originally established His, his kingdom on earth. He, 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 brought, he subdued a, a portion of this, this creation and, and He gave man the responsibility of extending its borders to the ends of the earth. And yet man rebelled and forfeited the right to complete that mission. But God never gave up on what He intended. God never gave up on His designs for His creation. And He sent His Son, His only Son, Jesus Christ, to complete the mission. To establish the kingdom on earth. And when Jesus rose from the dead and presented Himself alive to His disciples, He explained to them again and again and again the good news of this kingdom. I am the King. I'm going to sit at the Father's right hand, and from there I will subdue all my enemies to Myself, and then one day I will come again, and the kingdom will be unmasked in full. And that is the substance of our hope. As Sam pointed out, we, we live in a day when we do not yet see God's kingdom in full. We, we see it all the time. We, we see it in natural disasters such as hurricanes that slam into the Gulf Coast and bring uh, unimaginable uh, destruction. But we see it in the sinfulness of, of human hearts as, as yet again the, 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 the tumult of, of racism boils over and sin going all directions. And we can begin to wonder if this world has any hope. We can begin to wonder if things will ever be right. And the truth of the matter is that, that if it was up to us, the answer would be no. We do not have the wisdom nor the, the, the moral character to, to put this world right. We ourselves are, are sinners. We ourselves are, are weak. We ourselves are enemies of, of God and, and even in our best efforts fall woefully short of His glory. We cannot bring His shalom to earth. But we are not without hope. Because we have a King who's risen from the dead. We have a King who sits at the right hand of the Father on high. And He will put things right. Things will not forever remain broken. Death will not forever reign. Futility will one day be undone. And we will know the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. This is the good news of the gospel. You see, we, we sometimes in the evangelical church reduce the gospel to the forgiveness of sins, that, that we're not going to have to suffer for our Sins. We can be forgiven. And that is, of course, good news, but, but by itself, it is not the gospel. Eternal life by itself is, is not the gospel. This life extended forever into eternity is not the gospel. God has something far better for his people, he has a kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness and peace. A kingdom where His will is done on earth as it is in heaven.
a kingdom that we can inherit because we've been forgiven. A kingdom that we can enjoy forever because Jesus has conquered death. But it is the kingdom that gives substance to that hope. It's not this life forever. It's life in the kingdom into all eternity. That is the wonder of what Christ has accomplished. And that is the wonder of the message He sends His apostles out to proclaim. Notice just quickly, Jesus gives His apostles commands. I don't have time to to fully unpack this this morning. We'll, We'll have to return to it next week. But think about the the wonder of this gospel. Jesus sends out his apostles to proclaim the wonder of this gospel. He, He sends them out to proclaim hope to the world. Hope to those who who currently suffer injustice. Hope to those who, who have come face to face with their own weakness. Hope to those who see no reason for hope in this broken world. Jesus sends out His apostles to to proclaim that gospel. He he, he appoints certain men who will be His spokesmen. Now, we we sometimes think of the Great Commission as as applying to the whole church. (laughs) And and of course, in a sense, it, it does. It does apply to the whole church. All of us have the opportunity to to share the good news of, of Jesus Christ. But it is significant that He sends out His apostles as those with the initial charge. Because again, as we said last week, the, the, the commissioning of the apostles reminds us that there is but one gospel. There is but one hope. There is but one church. You see, we don't react to Jesus' resurrection and, and, and decide for ourselves what it will mean. Jesus sends out His apostles to, to tell us what it means and to, to tell us how we ought to Respond. That is what the, the significance of, of Jesus sending out his sent ones, his appointed authoritative spokesmen. So that Paul can say in Galatians that if anyone preaches any other gospel than this apostolic gospel, they are under God's curse. The church must be devoted to the apostles' gospel. And yes, we have the same commission to proclaim the gospel, but we proclaim it as those who share the good news of what we received from the apostles. And so the church today doesn't get to change the gospel. They don't get to modify it. They don't get to edit it. They get to proclaim the gospel that they received from the apostles. And it's a gospel that is for all. It's a gospel that that goes even to the ends of the earth. Jesus is not the king of some, some small little territory. He's not even the king of a rather large empire. He is the king of the cosmos. He is the Lord of all. And he sends his disciples to proclaim his kingdom even to the ends of the earth. But he doesn't send them out immediately. He actually tells them to wait. He gives them this great commission. He gives them this this good news to proclaim. And then he says, wait. Don't go yet. You need to wait here until you receive the gift of the Father. You need to wait here until you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And again, that is significant. 
Yes, the, the Spirit will be poured out on the whole church, but he is here sp speaking specifically about the, the apostles being baptized, those who were given authority to proclaim the gospel, those who are the foundation upon which the church will be built. They will be baptized with the Spirit. They will be filled with the Spirit. And that matters because it tells us that these spokesmen that, that Jesus has appointed, while they are more than fallible in themselves, as we clearly see throughout the Gospels, because they have been baptized in the Spirit, we can trust them. The Spirit has come upon them in power. He has led them into all truth. And we now can trust their testimony. Those who saw Jesus alive now tell us the, the truth of, of what it all means. And they do so not in their own wisdom, not in their own power, but in the power of the Spirit. But not only does the Spirit make them trustworthy, the Spirit makes them effective. Because they go out and they proclaim this gospel that is foolishness to the Greeks, that is a stumbling block to the Jews. And yet many respond because the Spirit goes with their words that they might not return void. The Spirit makes their, their words effective so that, so that many respond, so that many believe, so that many repent and and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, we are amongst those to whom the Spirit has granted faith and repentance. Because the work that Jesus begins to do through these apostles and through the church built upon their foundation, it includes us. We are those who the, the Spirit has granted faith and repentance. We are those who have believed because Jesus laid this foundation and so let us see it clearly. In those 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and His ascension, He laid the foundation for the church. Yes, He, he presented Himself alive so that it was beyond reasonable doubt. He, he taught His disciples what it means. He, he taught the apostles about the, the kingdom of God. And then He commissioned them to go out and lay the foundation of the church by bearing witness to Him as the resurrected King. And then he poured out on them the Holy Spirit that they might do so faithfully and boldly and, and clearly. And so that those who hear might respond. And because Jesus laid that foundation, the church is here today. And we continue to proclaim the same gospel, the same gospel of the resurrected King. And we continue to live in the same hope, waiting for that day when He will return to bring to completion the good work that He has begun. And because Jesus laid a foundation for the church, a foundation that will stand until the end of history, a foundation that the gates of hell cannot overcome, because Jesus laid the foundation for the church. And because he continues to build the church. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we come before you now, humbly asking that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to, to see your truth, to know your truth, to love your truth, and to live out of your truth as your church, to the praise of your glory, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.